Well, well, well. Today we celebrate an event that happens only five times a year. Only five times do we get together on the Parsha podcast and there's a brand new book. Of course, the Torah, the Pentateuch is comprised of five books. And today we begin the book of Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy, the final book of the Torah. This is the stretch run of the sixth year of the Parsha podcast with the help of the Almighty. What an amazing day. What an incredible opportunity to dig into this incredible book and Parsha. Of course, our Parsha begins the three Parsha long speech of Moshe. This is a bit more than a month before his passing. And in just a couple of weeks, Moshe is going to pass. Joshua is going to take over the reins. And Moshe has a message to convey to his flock. And he begins with a sweeping survey of the mistakes of the nation of the course of the past 40 years. But he's not criticizing them. He's not rebuking them. He's not castigating them. He's not reprimanding them directly. He's using hints and shorthand and coded words. And he's just hinting at the locations where the nation angered God and erred. And with only a word of peace, he invokes their complaints at the sea when they said, if only we had died. Their complaints about the manna, their sin with the daughters of Moab, their complaints, the memorable one, are there insufficient graves in Egypt, the Korach Rebellion, the Golden Calf, with subtlety and ingenuity. Of course, he's trying to allow them to save face. Moshe reminds the nation of what they did. This is the subject of the first four verses of our Parsha. And then Moshe begins to spell out more about what they need to know before he passes. And he begins to explain the Torah, to repeat the Torah with great clarity. This is truly the theme of the book. Moshe is preparing the nation for what they need to know before he passes and he's explaining the Torah to them, and he's trying to set them up for success in the day after. And to do so, he retells, this time in a more expanded fashion, more of the episodes of the past 40 years. And he begins at Sinai, in the aftermath of the Revelation, it's time to go to the land. And then he recounts his own inability to lead the nation alone. And the appointment of the hierarchical system of leaders of a thousand, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifty, and leaders of ten. And then he outlines the necessary qualities, the necessary virtues of judges, of leaders, to be deliberate in judgment, don't rule impetuously, don't show favoritism in judgment, take every case seriously regardless of the stakes, don't be fearful of any man, rule justly regardless of the litigants. And then he tells them, well, if there's easier questions, you can resolve them in the lower courts, while the more difficult questions you bring to me. Rashi incidentally tells us that Moshe displayed a little bit of hubris, extra misplaced confidence. He tells them, oh, all the simple questions go to the lower courts, leaders of a thousand, leaders of 50, leaders of a hundred, leaders of 10. And the most difficult questions that no one else can answer bring to me. Rashi tells us that Moshe displayed too much arrogance, too much hubris, 
And for this, he was punished when the daughters of Tzlavcha came with what's really a rudimentary question. What's the status of a man's estate when he has daughters but no sons? Moshe was mystified, and he had to ask God. If you're so certain in your aptitude and you display hubris, God will humble you. Moshe was forced to say, I don't know. But then Moshe, after he's finishing talking about the judges and the whole system that they set up, Moshe recounts in detail the episode of the 12 spies sent to scout out the land. And when they came back with a scandalous report, the nation rejected entering the land and they were punished as a result. They were condemned to spend 40 years in the wilderness. And Moshe also reveals for the first time that this episode condemned him, condemned Moshe to not enter the land. Joshua will lead the nation into Canaan. And then Moshe talks about the contingency, that small group of Jews, after it was determined that they are not going to enter the land, only their successive generations will. There was a small group that insisted on entering the land and they were slaughtered by the Amorites like bees. And that really concludes Moshe's explication of the events of the beginning of the 40 years. And Moshe then fast-forwards the narrative of the wars on the east bank of the Jordan. At the end of the 40 years, he talks about the encounters with Esau, with Esav, with Moab, Sihon, and Od, the lands allocated to the tribes of Ruvain and Gad and half of Manasseh. And that concludes our parasha. And in next week's parasha, Moshe continues his speech, recounting his impassioned plea to be reinstated, to be granted permission to enter the land. So that's the Parsha Parshas Devarim, and I will confess, every year, of all the 54 Parshios, 54 Torah sections that we read each week, the Parsha that I struggle with the most is Parshas Devarim. Of course, anyone who reads the Parsha could tell that it's a very different vibe than the previous parts of the Parsha. This is Moshe's speech before he dies. And it's really the words of Moshe that were later canonized in the Torah. And it seems really hard to figure out what's what's going on. You know, what's the message? What's even the subject matter of the parsha? If you were to ask me, what's the theme of the parsha? Moshe's talking about all kinds of things that don't seem to be connected. Of course, he's generally preparing them, trying to set up the nation for success for the day after. But it's really interesting and mysterious what Moshe chooses to highlight and what he ignores, what he dwells upon, what he mentions in passing, and what he omits. Obviously, it makes sense to everyone that if Moshe is going to pass and he wants to give a message, he's going to give a retrospective of the past, and he's also going to look forward to the future. But how he segues from topic to topic, what's the connective tissue between these adjacent subjects, it seems like a great mystery. Of course, the first few verses is Moshe's veiled rebuke. I think it's a very nice lesson for all of us. How to give criticism, how to rebuke when it's necessary, when to rebuke Moshe waited to the end of the 40 years, rebuking gently so the soft words will land, will be accepted, rebuking but allowing the recipient to save face, Of course, Moshe promises to clarify the Torah, 
And then right away he starts talking about one subject at length. When Moshe felt that he couldn't be the sole leader, he couldn't bear the people alone. He had to ask for help. And there's this appointment of other judges, leaders of a thousand, leaders of a hundred, leaders of fifty, leaders of ten. And then he goes to talk about a completely different subject, ostensibly, the sin of the spies. And these are both subjects that are well treated in the Torah. But what is the overarching message of the Parsha? What is the theme of the Parsha? What's the takeaway for us? So perhaps we can suggest the following approach to understanding our Parsha, or at least the opening chapter of our Parsha. What is the message that Moshe is trying to convey? And I think once we identify the larger picture, we can zoom in and see the details of Moshe's masterpiece. If you think about it, there's a scary subtext of our Parsha, really of the whole book. Moshe is about to pass. The greatest leader in the history of mankind is about to leave his people. The leadership of the nation after Moshe passes, will be in lesser hands. Now, it's quite possible that had Moshe not existed, Joshua would be heralded as the greatest leader of all time, because Joshua, in fact, was Moshe's apprentice. And if Moshe was like the sun, Joshua was like the moon. But still, Moshe is going to die. The man who orchestrated all the amazing miracles from the Exodus, the Ten Plagues. He brought water forth from a rock twice. He brought us manna from heaven, the splitting of the sea, the revelation at Sinai. He taught us the Torah for 40 years. He was in constant communication with the Almighty. When we blundered and were deserving of complete destruction, he prayed for us. He lobbied God to forgive us. What a boon to have such a leader. And we're losing him. What's going to be with this nation? We're the rudderless ship. We are doomed. How will we endure? How will the nation survive? Now, of course, any people, any nation that loses a great leader... This is a problem they have to face. But there's a particular and unique problem in this instance. Because we're not just any nation. We're this kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We're the representatives, the emissaries of God in this world. And the Almighty gave us His Torah with a mission to use the Torah to perfect ourselves and to fix all of mankind. That's it. It's a simple mission. All you need to do is to transform yourselves into angels and fix all of mankind and usher in a period of prosperity and ubiquitous knowledge of God. That's it. That's all you need to do as a nation. And of course, this is our mission and we cannot shake ourselves free of this mission. 
And the only way that that mission endures is if we maintain the Torah. And thus, the continuity of our people and really the viability of humanity hinges upon this one small nation maintaining its fidelity to Torah and preserving and perpetuating Torah to perfection. And when Moshe was around, well, he had a direct connection to God. He was the only prophet who was able to summon prophecy. Every other prophet would get ready and hope that the Almighty would choose to appear to them. Moshe was able to summon prophecy with God. And Moshe is also the only one whose prophecy conveys Torah. Once Moshe passes, Joshua does not have the same rights that Moshe had to ask God to clarify matters of Torah. In the aforementioned case with the daughters of Slavchad, it was a Torah dilemma and Moshe was able to ask God. Once Moshe passes, Joshua will not have that same right. And that's when Moshe begins the book. I'm going to clarify Torah for you with scintillating clarity because once I'm gone, that's it. You no longer have the opportunity to request divine clarification. It's going to be in the hands of whoever's left after Moshe, they're responsible to perpetuate Torah. So we're about to lose a great leader, of course, but we're also about to lose the only person in the history of mankind who can go to heaven to God to clarify matters of Torah. We're losing that and perpetuating Torah with complete accuracy is absolutely paramount. How are we going to survive? How are we going to endure? That's the subject of our Parsha. Moshe is going to show us. Moshe is going to show us the way. He's going to prepare us. So a month or so before his passing, he gathers us together and he guides us. He's going to show us how to live, how to flourish after he passes. So he opens up his speech, of course, with the criticism. And then he says, okay, we're going to clarify Torah. And that's really the whole, the whole book. But he starts off with a narrative, with an episode. And the first thing he mentions is an episode where Moshe himself displayed his own fallibility, his own shortcomings. He says, I cannot carry you alone. I can't bear this nation myself. You're too much for me to handle alone. How can I carry you? How can I bear your burdens? I need helpers. Moshe, of course, was the greatest leader of any people in any time of history. But even Moshe was fallible. All humans are. When you recognize that this paramount, singular leader 
was also fallible, that orients you, that prepares you mentally to imagine a life without him. So up front, Moshe is trying to prepare them to be confident in their ability to thrive in this post-Moshe world. And he elaborates on the time where he felt inept and he requested backup. And remembering that will help the nation prepare for the time without him. Moshe is set to hand over the reins to Joshua. If you think about it, you don't want to follow the legend. You don't want to follow someone who is category-defining. There are no greater shoes to fill than following up Moshe. The nation, perhaps Joshua himself, they may have been secretly dubious about Joshua's ability to carry this burden to execute this role. So from the very beginning, Moshe says, well, I wasn't invincible either. I too had to appoint underlings and lieutenants. Joshua and the other leaders, they will uphold the fort. It's also noteworthy that Moshe mentions something that redounds to his personal detriment. He describes the system of appointment of judges, and there are the lower courts, and the more difficult questions come to Moshe, and Rashi, of course, tells us that this is a mistake that Moshe made that resulted in him not knowing an answer to a basic question. Again, Moshe's own fallibility is being highlighted. Moshe also made mistakes. He too was fallible. The next major subject that Moshe addresses is the episode of the spies. Well, what happened there? There were 12 specially chosen men who were selected to go scout out the land and report back with their findings. Now, these 12 men were not arbitrarily selected. They were all men of distinction. They were all leaders of tribes. But what happened? They blundered terribly. They gave a slanderous report that drained the nation's faith and drained their conviction and condemned them to remain in the wilderness for 40 years. Why was this particular sin chosen to be highlighted? Perhaps we can suggest that this was again a failure of leaders. And if you're worried about losing great leaders, perhaps this episode can provide a modicum of comfort. The nation is dreading the loss of Moshe, and Moshe comforts them by demonstrating that the leadership hitherto was not mistake-free. Moshe was fallible. The 12 spies, leaders of men, made mistakes. And the only two of the spies that did not blunder were Joshua and Caleb, and they're still with you. They're still there at the helm of the nation. When the nation is about to be stranded without Moshe and his exquisite leadership, Moshe reminds them that the leadership until now was not exactly flawless. So what's the solution? Perhaps you may think, okay, well, we don't have Moshe. 
We're not going to have him really soon. He wasn't flawless. We're not going to have other leaders. They too weren't flawless. Perhaps you may think that anarchy, that's the way to go. Perhaps you think you could flourish without great leaders. So Moshe reminded them what happened with that one contingency who thought that they could enter the land without Moshe. That is what the defiant travelers tried. They said, okay, we're going to enter the land on our own. And they were slaughtered by the Amorites who swooped upon them like bees. Anarchy, going on your own, ignoring the leaders. Well, that's not the way. Accepting that humans are fallible and learning the principles for dealing with fallibility, with the potential for human error, That's the way to go. Moshe had a direct link to God. Any question that he had, he could summon a prophecy and ask God. Josh was also a prophet. He's like the moon to Moshe's son. When we're not going to have Moshe with us, we're losing not only the greatest leader, but the one who has that direct link to God. We can't rely on Moshe to clarify matters of Torah for us. Now we're on our own. Joshua will not be able to summon an audience with God to clarify matters of Torah. And therefore, it's imperative to know how to deal with a situation where the custodians of Torah are not only fallible, but we don't have the correcting mechanisms of direct clarification of Torah matters. I think if we look into our Parsha a little bit more deeply, it seems like our Parsha is a masterclass in dealing with human fallibility. Multiple times in our Parsha, we see a similar theme. And that is to not be over-reliant on your own aptitude and your own genius to be aware of the potential of making a mistake and being circumspect as a result. Rashi tells us, this is in verse 16, that part of what Moshe told the nation when giving over the criteria for being a good judge, is to be deliberate in judgment. If you have a case that comes before you, and it came once and twice and three times, and it's the same case, don't say, well, I know the law here. I'm not going to delve into the details of this case. I'm going to make a snap judgment. Don't do that. Instead, every case, be deliberate. Every case, consider the questions relevant to that case. Be deliberate. Don't rely on your memory. Don't rely on your capacity to evaluate and to size up a case 
in an instant. Remember your fallibility and account for it by setting up safeguards to make sure you don't make mistakes. The first rule of navigating your fallibility is remembering that you're not invincible. You are prone to mistakes and don't lose your vigilance. If you think about it, the whole system of judges, it's all based upon layers of safety measures to avoid mistakes. You have a question, you go to the, your local leader, your leader of 10, the small little cohort that you're part of. And if they know, and they can prove the answer, then great. If not, it moves up the chain. There is fallibility. And one of the ways we avoid making blunders is to have a lot of eyes on every issue. And the more people see it, the less likely that an egregious mistake will fall into the system. If you think about it, Moshe's own mistake that he talks about was a lack of vigilance, was an over-reliance on his aptitude. His supreme overconfidence, all the difficult questions you bring to me. In the episode of the Daughters of Tzlavchad, he was punished. But he's highlighting not just the fact that he made a mistake, but the nature of his mistake is quite informative because it shows us what to avoid. Don't be so confident. Don't forget your fallibility. In the episode of The Spies, Rashi tells us something very interesting. Even though this episode was addressed at length in the book of Numbers, in Parsha Shlach, Rashi reveals another element to this story. If you think about it, well, it makes sense. We're going to go invade a nation, a country. Let's find out what their defenses are like. Let's find out where their vulnerabilities are. Let's find out where their strengths lie. Let's learn more about our enemies to know how to design a battle plan that is winning. But the verse tells us in chapter 1, verse 22, Vatikravun Eli Kulchem. Moshe tells the nation, All of you came to me and you said, Let's go scout the land. Let's go investigate. Let us reconnoiter the land. Find out about the cities. Find out about the inhabitants, etc. Rashi observes that who came to Moshe? Everyone came to Moshe. But the all of you came to me, says Rashi. They came beirbuvia in a disorganized mixture. The young people were pushing and trampling upon the old people. And the old people were pushing and were trampling upon the elders. There was a mad rush to send scouts. The people came in a mixture 
there was one grand, confusing hodgepodge. This wasn't an organized request. It was a great, confusing mess. Everyone was piling the top of each other, telling Moshe, we have to send spies. Moshe is revealing to them and to us a critical point that led to this mistake. This wasn't calmly thought out. This wasn't coolly, objectively reasoned. There was no like clear-headed assessment. There was no calm point, counterpoint analysis. No one measured the pros and the cons of sending the spies. Everyone just ran as one, trampling over each other to pitch this to Moshe. There was overconfidence. Everyone was so convinced. In the merits of this mission, no one thought maybe this is a mistake. No one ruminated upon it. No one remembered, maybe, as fallible humans, we should reconsider, we should see the other side. They were like the judges who said, I know I know what to do here. I know the judgment. I don't need to get involved and really dwell upon the considerations. This is another example of how person who recognizes their capacity for mistakes, recognizes their own fallibility, if they just thought about it, they would have avoided that blunder. Like the judges and the episode of the spies were shown a system of error avoidance. Thinking twice before action, organizing your thoughts, hearing both sides, being aware that your knee-jerk reaction may be flawed. When you are aware of your own fallibility and you proceed with caution, knowing that you are prone to make mistakes, well, that's a system in which you're less likely to make said mistake. Even Moshe, the beginning of the Parsha, he rebuked the nation. He needed to rebuke, but he waited until the time was right, and he did it gently. His criticism was non-accusatory. He was barely ending at criticism. He wasn't coming with a full frontal attack. And he waited until after he had smitten their enemies so that they knew that he had their best interests at heart. His words were measured. He was very careful how he managed the nation. And then he gives advice to the judges. Be deliberate in judgment. Otherwise, you can arrive at the wrong or even the opposite conclusion. Speak carefully. Speak deliberately. Contemplate what you're going to do before you do it. Always be cognizant of the possibility of a decision being corrupted. This is the secret 
that Moshe tried to convey. How do you survive? How do you thrive without Moshe? The first thing is you have to be aware of your fallibility and design a system in which you can flourish notwithstanding that. If we examine our history, it worked. The very first Mishnah in the book of Perkyavos, Ethics, Chapters of Our Fathers, it talks about the transmission of the Torah. How the Torah was perpetuated from generation to generation, starting with Moshe at Sinai. Moshe received the Torah from Sinai, and he transmitted it to Joshua, and Joshua to the elders, and the elders to the prophets. And the prophets, they transmission the Torah to the men of the great assembly. That is how the book opens. We have Torah today, and we claim that this Torah that we have today is the same Torah that Moshe received at Sinai. And in the opening words of Perkyavos of the book of Mishnah, Ethics of Our Fathers, it talks about, you know, a thousand years of that chain. And then it tells us that the men of the great assembly said, taught three things. There were three aphorisms that they were fond of saying. Number one, be deliberate in judgment. Number two, establish many students. Number three, make a protective fence around Torah. And if you read this Mishnah, it seems like the two parts of the Mishnah are unrelated. This is a tale of two teachings. It starts off with the line of transmission, Moshe to Joshua, to the elders, to the prophets, the men of the great assembly. And then there is a seemingly unrelated teaching from the men of the great assembly of being deliberate in judgment, of establishing many students, and of making a protective fence around Torah. Perhaps we can suggest that the men of the great assembly, a body of sages, a thousand years after Moshe's passing, they had the Torah transmitted from generation to generation, all the way back to the times of Moshe, and they revealed the secret of this transmission. How did the Torah endure? How did it perpetuate from Moshe to Joshua to the elders to the prophets, generation to generation, decades over decades, centuries over centuries, in good times and in bad times, in Israel, in the diaspora? How did we endure with weaker leadership, at least relative to Moshe? How did we thrive notwithstanding our fallibility? How indeed did Torah endure after Moshe's passing? The men of the great assembly revealed the answer. Three things. We were deliberate in judgment. We didn't make snap decisions. We understood that there's the capacity for error and we took that into account and always 
dwelled upon our decisions before rendering them. And we had many students. There were many eyes in every problem. The Talmud tells us, incidentally, that students sharpen their teachers more than teachers teach their students. With a multiplicity of students, more eyes in every problem, there are less blunders that can slip through the cracks. And finally, you make protective fences. Always be aware that mistakes can happen. Always be cognizant of human fallibility. And therefore, there's this consistent continuum in this Mishnah. It starts off with the transmission, Moshe, Moshe passed. And then there's Joshua. And then there's the whole series of elders and prophets, generation to generation. And in each generation, there is a downgrade. Every generation's leaders are of a lower spiritual acuity than the preceding generation. How do you thrive? Be deliberate. Otherwise, you'll err. Have many students. Make sure that everything that you posit, a lot of people can evaluate it to see if it's true, to see if it is logical. And make a fence around the Torah. Maybe in older times, you didn't need as many fences, but now it's needed. Using this system, the sacrosanct mission of transmitting Torah from one generation to another, the mission that was the most important task ever assigned to mankind, it was pulled off. And it was pulled off to perfection. Despite the fallibility of man, despite not having Moshe, despite the systematic degradation of the spiritual acuity of each successive generation. How did they do it? How did they navigate and neutralize their propensity for errors? They acknowledged the need for continuous, rigorous deliberation. They assembled as many opinions as possible, lots of students, to ensure that no stone is left unturned and that it can be analyzed, every question can be from every vantage point. And due diligence aside, they made ordinances to prevent catastrophes. This is what Moshe is trying to convey to us in our Parsha. Yes, the thought of enduring, of continuing without Moshe can be terrifying, can be intimidating. But there's a way to do it. When you are aware of your own fallibility and you prepare and you act accordingly, you are well positioned to flourish notwithstanding all the headwinds you're about to face. I think this model is applicable to many endeavors. Of course, we're not judges, but we all have to make decisions. 
and we're all fallible. In our parsha, we're taught how to deal with our fallibility. There's one way of doing it. You make quick decisions, snap decisions, knee-jerk decisions, allowing your first instinct to show the way. We have a tradition that if you're ever so convinced to one of two options, and you're super overeater, you feel this push, this desire to do that, it's usually a sign, tradition tells us, that that position, that side of the fort in the road, is the option that's preferred by the Sahara. Your first instinct is quite likely to be wrong. But there's a second system. And that second system operates by slow, deliberate, careful analysis. Where all sides are examined. Decisions are put off until there's more clarity. Having a lot of people offer their input being measured, realizing your own shortcomings. And if we recognize that, if we are aware of our own fallibility and we plan accordingly, we can and will flourish and triumph. Okay, let's get to this week's exquisite insight. This is truly an exquisite one. If you agree, send me an email, rabbiwalby at gmail.com. I finally caught up with all the emails that I had backlogged going back to my trip to Israel. So it's an empty inbox. Flood it with your emails, rabbiwalby at gmail.com. There is a very unique verse in verse 12 of our parsha. Moshe tells the nation, how can I carry your contentiousness, your burdens, and your quarrels? Now, if you pay attention in shul this week, you'll notice that the tradition is to read this sentence with the mournful tune of lamentations. Of course, the week of Devarim, of our Parsha, always coincides with Tishabav. And the first word of the Book of Lamentations that we read on Tishabav is the word Eicha. And it's the same word that Moshe uses over here, Eicha. How can I carry your contentiousness, your burdens, your quarrels? The Midrash, in fact, tells us there are only three people who used the term Eicha, Moshe here in our parsha, Isaiah and Jeremiah. Like I said, Jeremiah, the author of the book of Lamentations, the book of Echa, this is the opening word of the book. And Moshe, here in our parsha, is lamenting, how can I carry your burdens, your quarrels? But if you look at Rashi, Rashi says something very interesting. What does it mean, your burdens? What is Moshe referring to 
when he says, how can I bear your burdens? So Rashi says something really surprising. Rashi says this reveals to us that the Jews were heretics. They were apikorsim. And Moshe is saying, how can I bear your burden? How can I bear your heresy? And he gives an example. If Moshe left his house early in the morning, they said, well, why is Moshe leaving so early? Maybe things aren't so rosy in his house. And if he's leaving late, they would say, why is Moshe leaving late? Maybe he's plotting evil plots against us. And that is what is referred to here with the heresy of the Jewish people. And if you read this Rashi, it raises an obvious question. Why is that heresy? Maybe they were ingrates, they didn't appreciate Moshe, but why is this an example of heresy? But regardless, there's an astonishing point here being conveyed by Rashi. Moshe says, how can I bear your burden? And what is the definition of a burden? Rashi tells us, it's heresy. Heresy is a burden. We think, we tend to think, the opposite. Faith is a burden. If you believe in God, oh, there's there's this God in, in heaven who's watching you, everything you have to do, everything you're doing is monitors overseeing, you have to make sure that you're conforming, you're complying with God. You can make an argument that faith is a burden. But here Rashi reveals to us, actually, no, it's it's heresy. That's the burden. And the great Rabbi Nachman used to say, if you don't believe in God, you have no one to rely upon. And all the burdens of the world are on your shoulders. And everything that comes up in your life Every problem that you encounter is a burden on your shoulders. And you are crouching. You, meaning the heretics. Heretics are crouching under the burden of all their problems. Heresy is quite a heavy load to bear. But what about someone who has faith? If you truly believe that the Almighty exists, and everything that happens to you, everything you encounter, it's all overseen, orchestrated by God. And you know that God only expects of you what you can do. Everything that you cannot do is not your responsibility. Then the only thing on your shoulders is what you could do. Everything else well, that's not my job. That's God's job to worry about. But without God, heresy results in the burdens of the whole world being upon your shoulders. There's this terrible uncertainty. What's going to be? Are we going to hit by? Are we going to be hit by an asteroid? Is it going to be nuclear war? Is it going to be climate change? And there won't be any water. There'll be too much water. What's going to be? We're going to die. And what happens when we die? It's so unknown. It's so terrifying. Oh, did you see what happened on the news? Oh, politics. What if this politician gets let the world doomed? 
What's it going to be? There's, there's monkeypox and COVID and all that. If you have faith, then you know that what I cannot be in charge of is, is God's responsibility. And he knows how to do what he needs to do. And he could be in charge. And I could allow him to have that burden. It's not my burden. It's his burden. Thus, faith, Rashi reveals to us, is actually quite liberating. The burden is really on God. It's not my responsibility. Of course, if it's something that I do have a say in, that I can affect, well then, it is my burden. Maybe it doesn't feel like a burden, because after all, they might have chose me for this mission. It's my mission. It's my calling. But there's no burden. What a beautiful idea here, courtesy of Rashi. Heresy is a burden. Faith is liberating. I think you've been listening Are you as excited for this book, the book of Deuteronomy, as I am? Send me an email, rabbiwobajima.com. Have an incredible day, a wonderful rest of your week, a restful, uplifting, invigorating Shabbos upcoming. Of course, this Shabbos is the ninth day of Av, it's Tishbav. But of course, we don't fast on Shabbos. We don't show signs of mourning on Shabbos. The fast will be pushed off to Sunday, so starting with Saturday night, we're going to be fasting. We're going to be mourning in the event the temple's not rebuilt in time. We will dwell upon, we will mourn the destruction of the temples and the departure of God from our midst. And we hope that we will merit to see the reestablishment of the temple and the reinstitution of the Sanhedrin, and the reestablishment of the Davidic monarchy, headed, of course, by Messiah. May we all merit to witness that day. Until next week, even if Messiah does come, we still have a partial podcast to do. I hope to get together once again in good health and in great spirits. And as always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com.